Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, an independent investigation into police conduct at Hamilton Pride has been given approval by the Police Services Board. Boris Johnson's Tories secured a victory in yesterday's UK election, paving the path for Brexit. And Andrew Scheer announced that he will step down as leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. An independent investigation into police conduct at the Hamilton Pride Festival in Gage Park this past uh, summer uh, has now been given approval by the city's police services board. Now, Scott Bergman is the uh, gentleman's name. He's a Toronto criminal lawyer who is leading this probe. Uh, he says the investigation is going to be guided by feedback from the 2SLGBTQ community. Uh, we'll want to look at this before they even start the investigation and about expectations about what might happen from this. And uh, we're pleased to welcome back our good friend Graham Crawford, Hamilton's reigning citizen of the year and a concerned citizen. Good to see you again. Thanks, Bill. You've... Uh, You've been very outspoken about this ever since this incident happened. I remember you and I talked, I think it was just two or three days after the uh, the incident at yeah, Pride did. Week. Um, and subsequent to that, uh, you, you had a couple of conversations. I know that uh, when the City Council and the Police uh, Services Board finally decided they wanted to try to do something about this, they reached out to you. Uh, and, and you were skeptical at the time. Um, and I'm assuming you still are. Well, first of all, Bill, I, I want you to tell you I, I have voted to keep my opinions confidential, so I'm sorry I have nothing to say. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that what we're supposed to do yeah, these days? I don't know. That's anyway, a, what, no, I, what I, council does anyway. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, kidding aside, uh, yeah, I was skeptical. Uh, I remain skeptical, but at the same time, having gone through the terms of reference, um, if these terms of reference are actually adhered to, I will. I look forward to seeing the report. Where I remain skeptical, Bill, though, is on implementation. What happens? Let's say the, the report is fantastic. Then what? Uh, because it's the same audience that I'm skeptical about that will receive the report. Well, let's talk a little bit about the terms of reference. What, uh, what excites you about this? What are you yeah. concerned about? Yeah, good question. I, um, so it, the terms of reference cover a number of areas. Uh, one of the clusters, because there's, there's 13 uh, recommendations yeah. that are or terms of reference. Uh, one cluster is about procedure. So what did the police do? Is there anything in place that would have gotten in the way of, of responding to pride or planning for pride? So there's procedural stuff. And the police will be really good at bringing that forward because they love that sort of stuff. The more complex stuff that is going to be much more challenging, especially if it's done properly, is an investigation into the culture of the police service. Um, now, that, that in some people's minds, that's a rather ambiguous term. What do they mean by culture? And what, do, right. what are you anticipating that, that Mr. Bergman is actually going to be looking for? Well, I don't know what I, I've, I've, I've Googled Mr. Bergman. He certainly has good credentials. He does. Um, Culture actually happens to be an area of management consultant yeah, expertise. That's, that's, that's your wheelhouse. That's what I used to do many years ago. Um, when you look at culture, you look at why things happen. So you can have all the procedures in the world. You can have all the binders and the books and the codes and the steps and the processes. The question is what culture do those processes get, get implemented in? Do people do they have a certain mindset? Do they fear the senior management? Uh, do they uh, align themselves with senior management? What is senior management's uh, guidelines and tone and mission and vision that get 
sent through the organization. And what does the culture do if somebody doesn't follow procedure uh, or do the right thing? Now, that's a big job. The budget that, I, as I understand it, that's been set for this thing is $500,000. Mm-hmm. And I'm telling you, Bill, you could drop five hundred k just on a cultural assessment, uh, let alone all the other stuff, because there's another cluster that speaks to uh, training and development. And I fear what's going to happen there. Uh, I don't know about what Mr. Bergman's experience with assessing that, but I suspect what's going to happen is the police will provide a long list of all the training programs they've done, how many people have gone through it, what the graduation rate is. What they will not focus on is what happened as a result of that training. What behaviors changed, were modified, or adhered to? Because that's a difficult thing to assess, but without it, you're just counting heads. People took the course. Um, and I, I've, uh, I'll let you ask another question, but I do want to make sure we talk about my experience with the Matthew Green uh, case and police training. Well, there's a, a wide variety of things. <clears throat> excuse me, that we could get into here. <clears throat> excuse me, it's just start starting the beginnings of a cold here. Uh, and oh, and thanks, you're right, Bill. Mr. Bergman. <laughs> Mr. Bergman's credentials as CV. Of, I mean, he of course was involved in the the Bruce MacArthur investigation right. in Toronto, right. uh, and didn't pull any punches. No, he did with his comments about that. No. He was very candid about that, and uh, and. Uh, it was it was interesting to see that and see how police responded to that. So I'm, I'm that's one of the things I'm concerned about because I'm hearing so many different and sometimes conflicting stories about what happened that day. Right. Uh, you know uh, the the initial reaction, of course, from the, the police that we were told was that well we didn't know where they were going to be in the park and we didn't understand what. And then I, I talking to Cameron Croach, who said I, I I talked to them the day before that and told them exactly where we were going to be. He showed them a map. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm thinking, wait a second here, there's a disconnect here. Uh, and then I talked to another person that was actually on site as this conflict was happening at Gage Park, who said yeah. the three officers that finally approached us were fine. They 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 seemed, you know, they were concerned about this. And, they, and then I'm hearing other comments from some other people that were on site that said, well, they made some rather sarcastic remarks about, well, if you'd invited us, we could have been here faster. So again, we don't know. No, we don't. We're getting so many, and this is, this is the monumental task Mr. Bergman's undertaking here to try to get to that. But you're absolutely right. What happened, why it happened, are two very important questions. But the broader question about the mindset Correct. in this community, I think, is, is something that needs to be addressed and something you've been talking about long before this happened last June. Well, there are systemic issues at the, in, in the Hamilton Police Service. And all we need to do to, to trigger the discussion, Bill, is to replay the tape of Chief Gertz sitting in the chair I'm sitting in right now looking at you in this studio when he talked about uh, sex in public washrooms in front of families and uh, anal intercourse so long as there was no youth involved. That sets a tone. That's what culture is about. When the head of your organization is comfortable saying in public, on the air, those sorts of things, using ancient tropes to get at people, that sets a tone and that drives culture. And that's one of the things Mr. Bergman is going to have to look at, and I wish him luck, but it's going to be a challenge. But, you know, when the chief is doing it, when you've got Deputy Chief Frank Bergen uh, approving uh, charges against uh, Cedar Hoppington speaking in a safe space meeting, uh, 
and gets arrested because of it, that sets a tone. That drives police culture. Those are just two examples, and they're driven by what's happening right now. And those are the two most senior people in the Hamilton Police Service. Then we, of course, have the Hamilton Police Service Board. And we've got Fred Eisenberg, who says, I, I have complete faith in the police. You know, our cops are tops. Uh, and, and it's just these are the people who will be the recipients of this report. The real focus needs to be what are they going to do with it? Are they going to bury it? Are they going to you know, just say, oh, we'll certainly look into this and do our very best and we'll report on this annually and blah, blah, blah? Uh, or are they going to get serious about it? And I would suggest that other members of the Hamilton Police Service Board who sit on council, like Tom Jackson and Chad Collins, better step up to the plate and support the community in this. I, I know some of the members of the board. Pat Mandy, I've, I've known for many years, worked with her on a couple of other boards in the past. Uh, Don McIver, great guy. Uh, Doug, uh, uh, very, very informed and very uh, passionate people about this community. So I'm going to ask you right up front, because uh, you know many of these people as well. They're, they're the ones that issued the terms of reference to this. Are they doing this, this report, this investigation, because they think it's something they're supposed to do or because they're passionate about finding the truth here? Well, look, I, I will give Tom Jackson this, and I have before, and I've done it actually, Bill, on your show, and that is Tom Jackson pushed for this inquiry. Uh, Fred Eisenberger did not. Uh, Tom Jackson, I think, had to convince Fred Eisenberg, in my opinion. Fred will say, oh, no, no, he's supported it, you know, forever. And, of course, I've seen Fred's response at the Police Service Board, and it sure didn't read like support to me. So Tom gets credit for that, a couple of marks for that. The quality of these terms of reference, I'm actually surprised with in a good way. The problem is they are, they are written within a context of mistrust. And that's not Scott Bergman's fault. That's the fault of the leadership uh, of the police service board and the police service itself. So we have to, we have to wait and see. Um, I think they picked a good one in terms of, of, of the lawyer who's mm -hmm. going to work oh, yeah. on this. Yeah. So I, I, I'm optimistic that the report will be thorough. Uh, I am skeptical about its implementation. I am pleased to see that it is going to be released to the public uh, at the same time. So there won't be any sort of time to prep or spin uh, the report results before we get a chance to see them. I'm happy about that. But, Bill, uh, this cultural assessment is a major undertaking. And I don't know how – I don't know what methodology Mr. Bergman's going to use, but this is not – he's not new to this. No. So he, ha he must have methods he uses. Um, it's going to include interviews, of course. The training assessment better be more than an inventory. Well, let me ask you something. Uh, when Mr. Bergman and his staff contact you, and they will inevitably contact you, I'm sure, uh, what, what do you want to talk to them about? What do you want to say? What do you want to see from this? Well, what I want to see is an honest and full and detailed assessment of the Hamilton Police Service culture. That, for me, is the number one outcome. In terms of what happened at Pride, that, of course, is critically important, but it is an incident. Uh, and there are details that need to be confirmed and so on, and procedurally, there will be corrections made, changes will be made. The bigger, much bigger, deeper issue is the cultural assessment, because if we don't honestly and fully assess the culture, there will, be, there will only be procedural corrections from time to time. The oops, we shouldn't have done that. We assure you that in future going forward, you know, we'll stop carding.
that, that was a procedural thing. The question about the culture is why would they card in the first place and why would they stop visible minorities more than they do white people? That's a cultural issue. That's not a procedural issue. Nowhere is it written down, stop black people, but that's what they did. How does that happen? How does that get sustained? What is the leadership saying about doing that? That's a cultural issue, and that is extremely difficult to change, particularly in a hierarchical, you know, pseudo-military organization, a command and control kind of organization. Let me ask you that. Excuse me again. When uh, Mr. Bergman was actually investigating the Bruce MacArthur incidents in Toronto, one of the questions that came up, and it was part of the terms of reference, uh, was the perception by many people in in the gay village in that community that there was an indifference by Toronto police at that time about the number of missing people that turned out to be murdered people, uh, and that uh, had it been any other section of the city, it might have been a different attitude. That was the perception people had. And, and they had to address that in the report. Are you concerned that, that, that that's happening here, too? Oh, it was always thus, Bill. I, I mean, it, it pick the minority, visible or otherwise. Uh, the police have a reputation for not treating m- minorities well, and it's still happening. Uh, all you have to do is listen to the minorities. Don't listen to the police. Listen to the people who, who, whose lives are being affected by the way they're treated. Let me give you one example, Bill, and it's, gonna, it's going to relate to Mr. Bergman, and I'm going to certainly reach out to him if he doesn't reach out to me to, to say, find out about this. I attended a half day of Matthew Green's, uh, not trial, but... Uh, but The hearing, yeah. The hearing, thanks, yeah. Bill. The hearing. And one of the questions that, that was asked of the police officer who... Uh, asked Matthew Green uh, whether how was he, what was he doing, and so on, was about his training, about the sensitivity and awareness training that he'd received. And he was asked about a dozen questions about that bill, and he couldn't remember a single thing, nothing. He was, he was permitted to say, you can share anything you remember. He couldn't remember anything. I raised this directly face-to-face with Chief Gert and said, you, are you following up and finding out what happens when people take this training? Did you follow up and find out why this officer remembers nothing? What are you going to do about that? And his answer was, he started to tell me about all the good training they do. He's going to do the same with Bergman. And Bergman needs to understand that that's not a good enough answer. That's going to be the police fallback answer procedural. It'd be all about stats. Well, here's a stat that they need to chase and they're not doing, and that is the impact of the training. What what reten- with learning retention and application. That's, they're tough to measure, but otherwise, what's the point? You just put people through classroom sessions and you have no idea if they learned anything. And you certainly have no idea if they're using what they learned. So there's a whole other issue, and that is a major investigation that needs to take place. That's not a cheap one. Uh, so the cultural one and the training impact yeah. one because if all we end up with is pages of inventory of all the titles of the classroom sessions, we got nothing. We've got nothing. I, I don't think that's the way it's going to end up. Well, but, he won't uh, do but, it, but yeah, the, well, well, we're going to certainly see. Uh, this uh, we're out of time right now. This is not the end of this discussion. It's only the beginning of, of this as this rolls through, and I'm, I'm, we're going to reach out. We already have. Uh, so we'd like to get Mr. Bergman in here to talk about this too as this process unfolds. And we'll talk again, too, Graham. Thanks so much for coming in today. Thank you, Bill. Appreciate it. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, following uh, yesterday's vote in the U.K., Boris Johnson, of course, uh, with a majority government, uh, Jeremy Corbyn is, uh, well, (laughs) 
uh, yesterday's news, I guess, as far as the Labour Party is concerned. But there are still some huge implications. I mean, you just heard on the, on our CHML newscast, uh, Boris Johnson, Prime Minister Johnson's uh, comments that uh, that Brexit's going to move forward, and uh, there's absolutely no more debate about that. Uh, there are still some obstacles that need to be overcome here, and some people that are still rather skeptical that uh, it's not going to happen anytime soon. Joining us to talk about all of this and the uh, ramifications of the election results is Stephen Fielding, professor at the University of Nottingham, an expert on British politics and uh, political history. Uh, Stephen, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. My pleasure. Let's uh, talk a little bit about the implications, and, and uh, obviously Boris Johnson feeling pretty good about this, and why shouldn't he with the, uh, the results that he got yesterday? Uh, but is Brexit a done deal now, automatically? Well, the first stage of Brexit is is going to be done in January because Britain will leave the European Union. Um, so that, that 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 will be done. That part of it will be done. But um, as everybody said during the election when Boris Johnson kept saying, I will get Brexit done, that is just the first stage of a very complicated process. So the first thing that needs to be done is is a negotiation as to what is the future relationship of Britain going to be with the rest of the EU. And and that is a very complicated exercise, extracting Britain from all the various um, kind of arrangements that that, already, that, that that prevail after so many years of being a member, um, is not a quick and easy job. Uh, he says he'll be able to do it by the end of uh, 2020. Very few people believe that he will. Um, but in a way, him having this big majority and having this great big boost, which was really unexpected. I mean, I think most people thought there would be a, a Boris Johnson government of some sort, even maybe a return to home parliament um, at, at the outer edges. But this kind of majority, it gives him the kind of authority which he can use um, to maybe have more flexibility um, and maybe have things uh, negotiate a bit longer. So we're not quite sure exactly how things are going to go, but um, he has now got the authority to get things done, but but how those things will be in the end, we're not quite sure. Uh, Mel Cap, who is a former British High Commissioner for Canada in, in uh, London, uh, suggesting that it's he says it's going to take eight to ten years for this to happen. Now, that's, that's maybe a little too skeptical, uh, but there are certainly some obstacles <clears throat> to overcome, aren't there? Oh, yes. Um, I mean, so many um, that, that you know the, the details of which would boggle most most minds. I mean, not only is there the um, renegot- the negotiation with the future relation with the EU, but of course there is also negotiations with other countries. The future relationship with the United States, um, and that has caused all kinds that caused all kinds of controversy during the election campaign itself, mostly around. Um, what um, the Americans will want in terms of the National Health Service, um, you know, fears that they that the Americans will want to open up the public the public service health provider to to private American companies, and you know the Americans play hardball in these kinds of negotiations. And Johnson says he won't be conceding any grounds on that, but you know he can't say that he won't be because he hasn't started those negotiations yet. Well, we can. Give you scripture and verse on that, obviously, Stephen. We've just gone through very contentious uh, negotiations with the new NAFTA deal here, which may be ratified now. We're not quite sure, but you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, you know what's what's said at a at a G7 meeting in a handshake. Yeah, we'll we'll cut a deal with you after the election is Mm -hmm. one thing. To actually negotiate the details of it, uh, it's a lot more trickier and much more difficult, I would think. Oh yeah, absolutely. And and as I say, this this is um, a very hot 
topic in Britain. I mean, the National Health Service is probably the most popular institution after the Queen in Britain. And the idea that um, maybe bits of it were going to be sold off to Donald Trump, which is how the Labour Party during the campaign presented it, is deeply, deeply unpopular. So Boris Johnson, you know, he's got his majority. He, he's got some freedom to to sort of take things in the direction that he chooses. But, but in these negotiations, he's up against implacable forces. And, you know, we haven't even started talking about China yet. So the, these, the whole process of disentangling Britain from the EU and establishing new relationships with the EU and all these other countries, I mean, it's, I mean 10 years maybe is a bit long, but it, it's not going to go away uh, anytime soon. Stephen, I'm glad you brought up the health service aspect of this, because it is going to be part of any trade negotiations. Uh, and maybe you could explain to our listeners just how sacrosanct that is. I mean, even the staunchest of conservative governments, Margaret Thatcher or even David Cameron just a few years ago, I mean, they, they would institute things like poll taxes and everything else, but they looked at this and said that's, that's an untouchable. People just w- they would not tolerate anything like this, but it looks like it's going to be on the table, whether they like it or not. Well, the, I mean, the, the National Health Service is, first of all, think the biggest employer in Britain. So there's a lot of people whose who's, who's, uh, who's livelihoods are involved in it. And of course, with an aging population, um, there's increasing demand for National Health Service services. So, so there's, there's, there's an ultimate kind of barrier, I think, that no government dare cross, which is that all treatment has to be free at the point of delivery. So that nobody, unlike in the United States, at least as I understand it, you know, if you've got, if you have a car accident, you've got to sign a form, but what before a hospital will take you, you know, you are, you are, you're given um, whatever is needed to be done free of charge. Now, there's different ways of delivering um, national health services. Um, So there are, in fact, some minor private um, providers, but nobody pays for for that, for that private provision. It's all taken care of within the NHS. So, as I say, um, the NHS, um, I mean, in this election that's just passed, there were basically two dominant issues. Uh, one was Brexit, and the other, very close by, was the National Health Service. It is, it is an issue, it is an institution, which, I mean, almost defines um, how the British feel about themselves. And it makes them feel good about themselves, because they feel that it is, it is a good service, although it's been suffering from underfunding for for a number of years and everybody's acutely aware of that including boris johnson now um but it's it also said something about them um, and about you know feel, it makes them feel better that they are british you know it's it's kind of become part of the political culture but it's also an extremely important part of many people's lives given as i say about the aging population the fact that we all need a health service um at many points in our lives Let's let's talk about the relationship between the EU and 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 the UK now. With the result, I, there's some speculation that well, you know, they they kind of backed off a little bit because they weren't quite sure what the election results were going to be. Obviously, Boris Johnson's back; he's got a majority. He does have a stronger mm-hmm. hand than he did six months ago, of course. But uh, there's still some animosity here, and and I guess the question a lot of people are asking this morning, Stephen, is uh, is this? I guess the phraseology you use is this going to be a hard exit or uh, Brexit or a soft Brexit? In other words, is is there a possibility of a deal, or are they just going to have to say that's it, we're out of here with nothing? Well, there is a deal. I mean, Boris Johnson negotiated a a new deal after Theresa May um, stepped down as Prime Minister uh, with the EU. So his problem was he couldn't get it through the House of Commons yeah. because he didn't have the votes. Now he has the votes. 
Um, and that, that, that deal itself was not particularly, well, well, aspects of it were mostly what Theresa May tried to get through. Um, but the one aspect which is particularly contentious is about the border with Northern Ireland, that there, there will be checks uh, between the rest of Britain and Northern Ireland, because Northern Ireland for trade will be treated as if it's still in the EU for a number of years. right? And that, that was something Johnson said he would never do. Yeah. Um, and and then he betrayed the, the 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 DUP in Northern Ireland, who have now done very badly in local in, in the in the in the elections. So so that's it's a done it's a done deal. Um, it just needs to pass through the House of Commons, which it will. Um, there is that running sore in Northern Ireland, which could, given the history of Northern Ireland, go in some unfortunate directions. Um, but it's a deal. The exit is is going to happen. It's what it's everything else. It's a future relationship. Um, with the EU, how we relate to, to to it, when when we finally, you know, are completely disentangled um, from it, because um, Brexit is is really just saying, like, we've agreed these things. There's going to be a little transition period, and that which will give us time to negotiate the future relationship. Let's talk about one of the other partners, uh, and and that being Scotland, uh, who, of course, uh, to go back to the referendum, Scotland uh, voted to stay with the EU. They don't, they do not want a Brexit. Uh, yeah. Now, with the result yesterday, and of course, uh, you know, First Minister Sturgeon's party actually did quite well with the, the number of seats that they attained yeah. in this parliament. Uh, I'm seeing some reporting right now from Edinburgh that's suggesting that there are rumblings now that they may seek another independence referendum, simply saying, if you guys are out, then we don't want to be part of the UK anymore. Uh, now, I understand they have to get parliamentary permission to do that, but it looks like this could be a rather acrimonious relationship. Oh, it will become more acrimonious because... Um Boris Johnson is not going to give the SNP their second referendum. I think uh, that, 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 that will take... I mean, I, I, cannot, I cannot see how he will do that. Because in Scotland, uh, the Conservatives did relatively well um, in, this, in this election because not everyone in Scotland wants, to be, wants independence. And so the Conservatives have strongly identified themselves as the party that says no to independence, whereas, of course, the SNP have done rather well as being the party that says yes. Um, and, and I just don't see Boris Johnson conceding that because, um, I mean, as a unionist, um, he's, he's not going to do that. Uh, but, but also it's, it's to his advantage, really, to, to some extent, to keep this one, this issue rumbling on uh, because it's, as I tell you, it, it wins him some seats in Scotland, which he otherwise might not have. But it also creates um, a difficulty for the Labour Party um, which may or may not be very important at the moment, given the state at which it's fallen. But it's it's an issue which makes um, that they can always kind of bring in, like they did in this election, like they did in the 2015 election and the 2017 election, that if Labour is ever, ever going to form a government, it will be with the SNP and it will be a kind of coalition of chaos. So it's something which, I mean, Johnson wants Scotland to remain in the United Kingdom for, you know, because... He's prime minister. It is the United Kingdom, but it's also politically advantageous to him as a conservative. Um, so they're not going to get that second referendum, which, to be honest, I think probably suits the SNP as well, because it gives them an issue around which to mobilise. It gives them a resentment um, upon which to appeal to people in Scotland. And every time something goes wrong in Scotland, and they, they are the government in Scotland, they can blame Westminster. And that's what they do. So um, although the ultimate goal of the SNP is, of course, independence, this is giving them, you know, it's basically almost giving them their cake and letting them eat it. 
And it's a, it's just a card they can play anytime they want. I mean, we see that you know there's a talk about a you know, separation of the province of Alberta here in Canada right now because they're not happy with the federal government. It happens. It's a card they play, and I guess you have to kind of give them the, a little bit of wiggle room. I got to ask you. We got a few minutes left here. What about the Labor Party now? Uh, this is a party that was, uh, well, obviously post uh, Tony Blair decided that they wanted to move far to the left again. Uh, Corbyn mm. was actually accused of being a Marxist. I guess there are c- certain elements of his platform that look that way. Uh, do they try to move back to the center? How do they do? Mm. They have to reinvent themselves at this stage, Stephen. Well, Jeremy Corbyn became Labour leader because Labour had lost two general elections, 2010, 2015, and yeah. he promised. He said, "If we take a more radical, overtly socialist path." Everything could be sorted. You know, we will, we will win elections. And they kind of nearly did in 2017. I mean, they didn't, but they, they did quite well. And so they, they, people around Corbyn and Corbyn himself and many members believe that they, this is why they went into 2019 with a very, very radical uh, manifesto. They believe that they didn't really lose this election um, because their, pop, their policies are still popular. They, they are literally saying this. Their policies are still popular. And it was Brexit. It was a Brexit election and, you know, Boris Johnson won it because he said he'd get you know, Brexit done. And so what they're saying is that, well, had it not been for Brexit, we'd have won. And so there are people in the Labour Party today who literally think that this is not the defeat that many others see it as because it was Brexit. And once Brexit's done, then we, we, we can win again. So um, there's a lot of denial going on in the Labour Party at the moment. And Jeremy Corbyn says he'll stand down before the next election, but that's in five years. And a lot can happen in that period of time. Uh, Obviously, there are other voices uh, that would like to see the party move back to the same way that uh, that Tony Blair had them some time ago, uh, which is more of a centrist party, obviously. Uh, Is is there an appetite for that? Not to the extent of Tony Blair and and that kind of sort of centre-left politics. even, even you know, the most mainstream Labour figure really is much further to the left of Tony Blair uh, now. But, but there, is, there are people who think things went too far. Um, the, the, and also the party's association through Jeremy Corbyn with anti-Semit, anti-Semitism um, and his history of supporting terrorists and all that kind of thing, which went, really, went down very, very badly. Um, with with certain parts of the electorate, that that there needs to be some kind of a clean break, but that some of the policies that Labour offered the people were actually popular, um, taking railways into into back, back into state hands and making sure they actually serve the interests of consumers, not shareholders. That was really popular, but the problem was that voters looked at Jeremy Corbyn, um, saw his record, and didn't believe he would be able to deliver those popular policies. So. Whoever manages to succeed Corbyn um, will need to kind of reconfigure what the party stands for. But it will still be much further to the left of Tony Blair. But that's because British politics is slowly nudging away from that, that kind of, um, kind of politi- politics. Even, even Boris Johnson is talking about the need to put more money into the NHS, to you know, put money into creating greater infrastructure, more railways, more this, more that. Government should do more um, because after ten years of austerity, Britain is suffering. The election's over. Boris Johnson's got his majority. He's going to move ahead with Brexit. But as as you have already articulated, uh, there are still some 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 ruffled feathers. That there's 
so always this this healing process that has to happen after a general election and, and promises are made and, and people sometimes mm-hmm. have expectations. Is Boris Johnson a healer? Well, it's interesting uh, what he did say um, in the early morning um, to, to his own supporters, which was he realizes, I mean, his victory is partly based on people that would normally vote Labour kind of lending him their vote because of Brexit and because of their, their complete dismay about Jeremy Corbyn. And he, he realises that. He actually said that. And he has an opportunity to, to ensure that once Brexit is kind of done, as it were, that he will kind of bring extra spending, this, the infrastructure, um, the transport links, to those parts of the country which have voted for the Conservative Party for the first time, you know, since the First World War in some cases, that if he doesn't do things to heal the country, to reduce the inequalities and, and, and the division within Britain, that he's not going to win the next election or he's going to lose all those seats that he's just won from Labour. So even if it's only because it's in his own political interest, there will be some kind of healing going on. Uh, fascinating uh, and history-making events, of course, over the last 24 hours in the UK. Stephen, always a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for your time and for your perspective on this today. Yeah, nice to talk to you. Great talking with you. Stephen Fielding, of course, from the University of Nottingham. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, in an announcement that uh, caught a few people off guard yesterday morning, uh, Conservative leader Andrew Scheer announced that he is stepping down. Uh, amid speculation over the last couple of months, actually, since the last federal election, that uh, the Conservatives, especially some of the uh, hard and fast members of the caucus, were looking for a change there. Joining us to talk about uh, the decision and the implications is our good friend Charles Adler, host of Charles Adler Tonight, which is heard across the global radio network uh, every weeknight. Uh, Charles, as always, thanks for joining us. Great to have you back on the program today. Anytime, Bill. Uh, you know I love yakking with you about anything at all, but just uh, full transparency and uh, disclosure, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I just seconds ago said this to our followers on Twitter, joining Bill Kelly, AM 900 CHML, in seconds to discuss Andrew Shear. And because the Shear thing feels so yesterday, we'll likely talk about other stuff like the Bojo victory in Britain and Trump impeachment. Absolutely. Absolutely. So much to go. This is hardly one of these slow news days. There's so much going on here. First of all, let's touch base on the sheer thing. Did did the announcement catch you off guard? No. I expected them to, you know, take a walk in the the snow uh, in the... uh, you know, Christmas holiday period, and then uh, basically find a way to to buzz off in in January, and uh, likely hand over the the reins to another interim leader. So I expected it to be far more organized. So obviously, uh, some things uh, got got in the uh, in in the punch bowl, and he he did it a little sooner than later. So I was somewhat surprised that it happened before January, but I'm not not surprised that it's. It's happening, no, not at all. Well, I wrote a piece about a month ago that said he was a political dead man walking, and I, I mentioned at the time it's not a matter of if he's going to step aside, it's when. So there was a certain inevitability to this, wasn't there? Well, look, I mean, the the, the problem, you know, guys like you and me are, are well-wired, and when we're told by the people who are publicly saying how much they love and respect Andrew Scheer, when we're told by those same people off microphone, off the air, off the record, uh, you know, so who do you think is uh, next? Uh, you know, da 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 da. You know, they're always asking us, uh, who do you think plays well? 
So it, 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 it's clear that, and, you know, the same thing existed in, in Britain, you know, to talk about the Brexit and the, and the, and the Bojo Boris Johnson uh, victory. You know, all these people uh, on, on microphone uh, talking about how they supported Jeremy Corbyn, and, of course, off the microphone, they, they weren't supporting Jeremy Corbyn. The same thing's been happening to Shear. Now, Shear's not stupid. I mean, he, he knew from, from day one uh, that he was being stabbed in the back by his own people. Uh, I guess what's interesting today, I wrote about this. It's on the Global News site today. The, um, the piece that uh, Mercedes uh, Stevenson uh, broke yesterday. Yeah. This whole thing, the, the, you know, the, the idea that it happened pre-Christmas, um, this whole thing appears to be uh, about uh, Stephen Harper being really, really ticked about this private school issue and uh, passing it on to his good buds who formed uh, one of these committees that's that's not memorable i mean the only point is the uh, you know harper harper people uh, decided uh, to publicly uh, do a a brutus on him yeah, uh, public ex- executions in politics are, are, are a bloody thing, and we certainly saw that yesterday. Uh, we'll have lots of time to talk about who may be stepping up here. I mean, everybody's denying they're interested in the job now, but you know, Chuck, you've been around long enough. They all deny it right up until the time that they say they want it. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the problem, you know, politicians always complain to us that we portray them as phony. Uh, we're not portraying them as phony. We're just giving them oxygen. And, the, you know, when they're saying one thing one day and another thing uh, another day. I mean, yesterday everyone was trying to get a hold of the usual suspects, Ron Ambrose and Peter McKay and Lisa Raid, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And none of them wanted to speak. And none of them wanted to speak because I guess the body was still warm. Uh, and uh, n- none of them want to, uh, you know, admit publicly that they're going for it. I'll throw uh, Aaron O'Toole into that mix as well. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, nobody wants to step over the body to, to jump over to the podium. Uh, let's let's switch across to the pond here, because I know we've just got a few minutes left. And, and let's talk about Boris Johnson, uh, who was, I just watched his speech here a couple of minutes ago from 10 Downing Street, uh, seemingly thinking that this is it now, that it's smooth sailing from here on in. Uh, I'm not so sure that's going to be the case. If it's a so-called hard Brexit where there's no deal with the European Union, uh, whatever honeymoon people are having with uh, Boris Johnson will end. It will hit the wall. It will crash. Thud. You know, all those, uh, for those of us who grew up with with Batman, and uh, they put up all those uh, different, uh, you know, thud, pow, blah, 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 you know, all that kind of stuff. That's what it's going to look like. People are going to forget what happened uh, yesterday. So much of what happened yesterday was the Brits telling Labour, uh, to take their heads out of their arses, because uh, Corbyn was just a, a burned-out old anti-Semite, uh, pro-terrorist uh, freak show, and it was going nowhere. It was embarrassing to, to working people. It was embarrassing to lower middle-class and middle-class people that, that vote Labour. It was, uh, you know, just a, a, a bloody nuisance, and anyone who was assisting Corbyn in the last number of years to, to stay in power and, and going on air uh, talking about how wonderful he was and what a wonderful prime minister he was going to be, they should all be sued for political malfeasance. Yes, this was a victory for, for the Tories and a victory for Johnson, but this was very, very much a defeat uh, for Labour. They have not done this badly, this poorly, uh, since World War II, and there was a reason for that. Well, there's perceptions here. I mean, you know, Jeremy, you, you can put him in a nicer suit and trim his beard, but he's still a radical Marxist, and then people understand that. Well, of course they do. And, uh, you know, I mean, it was just a, uh, look, any time you can give a conservative party in any part of the world uh, a Marxist uh, for a, a labor party, a social democratic party leader, I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a day at the beach for a conservative 
because conservatives love to portray all people who are progressives <laughs> as Marxists. And with this guy, you didn't have to portray him. He was doing it on his own. And anyone who was reading his, his writings and his ramblings was asking themselves, wait a minute. I mean, th- th- this guy is an old radical, and he's still radical. And, and, and what is the point? Well, it's funny you should mention that characterization because that's obviously what Trump has been doing for the last little while. You'll notice that anybody who is not in Trump's camp is a socialist, and and that's Absolutely. a bad word apparently in the United States now. Well, Ronald Reagan would be a socialist by by oh, yeah. Trump's standards, but you know it is it is uh, it is uh, instructive to the to the Democratic Party. Um, you know, I, I've got lots of friends still in the United States. Doesn't matter that I don't live there anymore. And um, I know people there who are very progressive and, you know, like uh, Bernie Sanders and they like Elizabeth Warren. And in the primary, they're not voting for Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders. They're voting for Joe Biden because they believe that Joe Biden still has the best chance. And you don't have to take it from me. You can take it from Donald Trump. If Donald Trump didn't send Rudy Giuliani into Ukraine to dig up dirt on, on Pete Buttigieg or Elizabeth Warren. I mean, he, Trump knows uh, who his uh, number one opponent is, and it's, it's Biden. On that point, Giuliani just got back from Ukraine again uh, yesterday. Uh, he's still carrying on, notwithstanding the fact that, well, they just voted, of course, the, uh, the rules of impeachment, uh, and that's going to go to the, to the House uh, next week. Uh, these guys are carrying on as if there's absolutely nothing going on. They seem totally oblivious to the fact that, uh, that you know, this is pending. Well, he's going to turn impeachment into a trophy because uh, he knows that the Senate uh, wouldn't dare uh, do a Brutus on him. Uh, so the Senate will acquit him, and once he's acquitted, he'll talk about exoneration, and he'll talk about it as a, as a great victory. I mean, just just watch. When, when, the, when the Senate, in, in, at the end of January, acquits Donald Trump, Donald Trump will treat it like a campaign trophy. The Republicans will fundraise on it, uh, you know, back to the us-versus-them stuff. Uh, and uh, I, I do not see the impeachment thing as anything but a, a short-term positive for Donald Trump. And by the time November runs around, impeachment will be a, a really old story. Well, and there's, let's talk about uh, the, the performance of the people. I mean, I, we still remember Peter McKay's uh, characterization of Andrew Scheer, you know, missing an open net on a breakaway. Sure. Uh, the way the Democrats have handled this whole process, uh, I'll use a football analogy since we're talking the states. This is Scott Norwood, wide right. I mean, they had a chance here to score some points against this guy, and I think they blew it. Well, yeah, they blew it, and they they blew it in, in many different ways. And you know, all parties blow it when they're only talking to their base. I mean, you you've got to get people who are independent. You've got to you know build that bridge and get people to cross the bridge. When you're only talking to your own choir, I really think it's a problem. It's a problem for the right and the left. You know, but you, you talk about um, McKay and and Sheer. Look, I spent a lot of time in 905 during the campaign, and I could go for kilometers. I used to say miles and miles. I'm trying to (laughs) clean up my act. I could go for kilometers without seeing a blue sign. So, excuse me, uh, that isn't about Scheer's uh, policy, which I'm not for. That isn't about Scheer's personality, which I'm not for, but also not for BSing you and and this great audience that is listening to 900 CHML. Their central problem in 905 was on the ground. It was poor organization. They're more organized in Red Deer, where they run up the score to 70, 75% of the vote, than they are in 905. That makes no sense no matter who the leader is. There's one point. I have a point. I, you and I talked the day after that last federal election. Uh, and I, as we mentioned, watched your comments as you were doing the coverage on Global that evening uh, with the panel discussion. Uh, if the conservatives think that getting rid of Shear is actually going to solve their problems, they're sadly mistaken. As you articulated that night, Charles, uh, the, the conservatives have got to do some soul-searching here. Well, they've got to be a modern party. 
I mean, I, I, I don't know what century I'm in when I, when I listen to them, especially when they're talking to their base. I mean, they are, they are hung up on, on, on a different century. They're hung up on talking. Well, first of all, about, about the climate change. I mean, seriously. I mean, the, the earth ain't flat. The climate is changing. Get on the program. And the, the idea that, you know, some people who are out of work in the energy patch uh, don't want uh, to talk about climate change is not a reason uh, not to be involved in, in, in 2019. You don't have to do a full Greta, you know, but, you, but you've got to be real. Yeah, well, that's, uh, as you mentioned, uh, when they change the name from progressive conservatives to just conservatives, they stop being progressive, and maybe that's something they've got to reconsider at this stage. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, when a leader is is, is cowering, is, is timid about being in a bloody parade, I mean, please, I mean, how, how, do you, how do you look anyone under 35 in the eye and say that in this particular case it's, it's, it's Andrew Scheer, uh, deer in the headlights because he's being asked by Rosie Barton whether or not he wants to be in a parade, and, and, and he looks like someone just attacked his mother. I know. Well, it's, uh, he's, he's living the consequences of it now. Uh, it's, I know it's a busy day for you, Charles. I really appreciate you taking the time for us. Let's do this again soon. Anytime. Take care. Charles Adler, of course, uh, from Charles Adler tonight. I uh, want to pick up on the uh, on the Andrew Shear thing for just a couple more minutes, if we could, because there are some rumblings, and there's going to be some ripple effects about what's going on. And uh, to address some of that stuff, I want to bring Sean Simpson into the uh, discussion. Sean, of course, is vice president of uh, Ipsos. Uh, Sean, thank you for joining us on a very busy day today. Glad you could be here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Let's talk a little bit about that. I'll ask you the same question I asked Charles. Were you surprised by the announcement or by the timing of the announcement yesterday? Well, yeah, it, I think it came uh, a bit of a surprise to people. One would have thought that if he was going to resign, he would have done it uh, more uh, immediately after the uh, the election. But I suppose he saw the uh, the writing on the wall. It would have been a very difficult uh, four or five months leading up to the uh, to the leadership review. Um, and then, of course, Global News was was uh, was reporting about the uh, the private education uh, uh, funding that he was getting from the from the party. And maybe it's not so much that you were getting. Uh, money to pay for your children's education, but you're trying to be prime minister, making you head of the education system, you know, de facto, and uh, it's not good enough for your own children. So the optics of it are terrible, and uh, I guess he decided that uh, it would be better to go rather than to stay. Yeah, Robin Urbeck from the Global Mail told us last night when we were doing the show uh, on 640, uh, it was optics more than anything else, you know, because I know it's not illegal what he was doing. Uh, but this is a guy that you know tried to paint his opposition, that being Justin Trudeau, as an elitist, and here's a guy who's sending his kids to private school, and and you know there was a bit of a hypocrisy there, and it, it I think it was just it was piling on to I think an awful lot of consternation people might have had about the guy in the first place. Yeah, that's right, and uh, you know the the election was uh, was tailor made uh, for the the Tories to to defeat the Liberals, uh, you know given the. Uh, the scandals of the of the prime minister, uh, and uh, if you can't come back, then you know if you're arguing on ethical grounds uh, and uh, and show that uh, you are above reproach, um, optics are important. Uh, and so I, I think he he realized that it was just going to be a very difficult path for him to uh, uh, to, to stay on. Um, this was the, the uh, just the icing on the cake, I think, for him. Well, and I know they tried to, to paint this as a hollow victory. You know, they oh, we increased our seat total and we held them to a minority government. But I mean, in all the years you've been doing this, Sean, with Ipsos <laughs> and talking to Canadians on on a daily and weekly basis, there's only two places in politics: first place and no place. I mean, you either win or you don't. Yeah, that's right, and uh, and that's the way that we phrased it in our uh, election day poll that we did for Global yeah, News. We that's asked, right. 
if uh, if Andrew Scheer doesn't win uh, the election, uh, what should happen to him? And the vast majority of Canadians said that they believed that he should um, step down. Now, Tory voters were much more split. In fact, a slim majority wanted him to stay. But of course, that's before these most recent uh, revelations and some of the postmortem that they did uh, in the aftermath. So, um, you know, most Canadians were not on uh, on sheer side, and uh, and he saw the writing on the wall. Uh, lots of time for speculation, but uh, it's only been 24 hours since this story broke, of course. Uh, and as Charles Adler was just telling us, nobody wants to step over the body and jump up and say, I want to be that person. But there's an awful lot of speculation about who might step forward. A, a couple of politicians uh, on the provincial level, including Doug Ford and Jason Kenney's names have been mentioned. Uh, Ronna Ambrose is out there. Uh, how do you handicap something like this? Yeah, it's very difficult, um, and and quite frankly, we actually can't really poll on it because we would only be polling conservative party members, and you know we don't know who they are. Um, so uh, you know we have to think in, in bigger picture, and uh, I, I would think that the Tories are going to go with a more uh, progressive leader. They might even go with a French Canadian leader. But one of the things they have to be concerned about. And Andrew Scheer mentioned it in his, his speech in the in the House yesterday, was that they want to be united, uh, and uh, and what that means is that if they go with the more progressive leader this time out, that we're not going to see the more conservative part of the base, um, you know, feeling like they would be better off on their own, uh, and uh, and I think that's a that's a real concern uh, given some of the, the anger and feelings that are coming out of places like Alberta and Saskatchewan. Well, and that was, of course, the the, the, the birth of the Reform Party that, uh, you know, that split the Conservatives and obviously gave the Liberals a you know, majority governments for a number of years right now. But the other concern that I'm hearing, Sean, I, and obviously with, with the work you do at Ipsos, I wanted to get your read on this. Uh, some people that, that have been hardcore Conservatives that I've known here in southern Ontario for a long time feel that the party has drifted away from them, that it's a, it's a, a Western province-centric party right now that doesn't seem to, to be able to relate to Ontario and Quebec anymore. Is, is, is there a realization that maybe they have to, to widen the tent? Well, I mean, if that's the case, then the Liberal Party is an Eastern Canadian party. Uh, you know, I think things uh, things ebb and, uh, ebb and flow. Um, I think certainly uh, there is a, an urban-rural divide in Canada here, um, maybe even more than an East-West divide, where the cities and the suburbs are increasingly going red, and rural Canada is going blue. But the longer-term trend is that more people are living in cities and not in the rural regions. So that is good news for the Liberals and very bad news for the Conservatives. So they need to figure out how they're going to break through in some of Canadians' largest cities if they want to have electoral success. Well, a leadership convention in 2020, that's an early Christmas gift, I guess, for guys like you and me. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Sean, always a pleasure. Thanks for the time today. Thank you. Take care. Sean Simpson, of course, Vice President of Ipsos. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.